We've been, uh, we'll be studying and reading together the book of James over the next few weeks. I'd mentioned that earlier. Pastor Chris did what I thought was just a very superb uh, job last week of introducing us to one element, one part of that book from the uh, opening chapters. Uh, and the theme of that one was about, about perseverance. Today, the second part of where of our moving through that book will include a focus on what happens in spite of one's perseverance, about being human, about what James not so much warns about but reminds the people to whom he is writing what he reminds them about, namely who they are. If you've ever felt like the, uh, the woman on the image, that things had gone out of order, out of control, and you don't really know whether it was your fault, whether you made bad choices, or whether the world just was what it is, James talks a little bit about that in uh, much of his book, but begins to introduce that idea in these opening verses, in this letter, in this uh word of encouragement he crafts and sends along to some other people. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours today from God our Father, from our Lord, and from our Savior Jesus. Amen. The people were Jewish Christians. They were living in effectively in the Mediterranean world in the first century. They also were the first generation of believers. They were Jews, but they had become followers of Jesus. And they were the first generation of such people who were slightly at risk because the institutional memory, the collective memory of who was with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who remembered Jesus, was likely going to diminish with the death of the people in this generation, probably in the year 60s to 70 after the 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and shortly before the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. Most of us know what can happen when that institutional memory is lost. Several years ago, Tom Brokaw, the former NBC News uh, uh, anchor, wrote that marvelous book called The Greatest Generation. When he wrote it, he was, of course, asked why he'd written it. He said he didn't want the memory to be lost of those people in his father's generation who had been so much a part in shaping the world that we have today. When James writes this letter, or whatever form it may have taken, whether it was a book, whether it was a greeting, maybe it was a sermon, he crafts it in such a way that it would be words of encouragement and support for these Jewish Christians out in the Mediterranean world 
in various congregations in that area who had known of Jesus, perhaps some of whom had known Jesus years earlier. And James wants them to keep their faith, sustain that faith, and to live with great purpose and faith into the future. Now, I imagine that James was a type A personality. The reason I think that is that he has a great emphasis throughout his book on doing things, getting connected, making things happen. And being, if he were, a type A personality, what I know is this, is that people who want to get things done want to do so with a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm. And James's willingness to tell the people who are going to hear this to go out and do things and to care for the world, to care for each other, to be very, very assertive in terms of how they express their faith. I want to think that James knew that the story needs to be told, but his particular mindset was such that he wanted people to be engaged, to be doing. If any of you has been, and I'm sure you have been, involved in the life of this congregation or any congregation, you know that when you're involved, whether you happen to be standing here leading worship, whether you are serving as a host, running the tech booth, regardless of what activity it is, you know that when you are doing something, you tend to be slightly more engaged in that mission. And so when James writes to the people of the Mediterranean world, these Jewish Christians, not only does he say, remember who you are, he says, and also go and do. If you look for a parallel, similar thinking in the New Testament about what James is talking about in this letter, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, but which includes at the opening of chapter 5 a section known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed are those who, and there are a number of descriptions there. So James knows all of that, and he writes to this group of people and wants them to remain faithful, and then he goes on to talk about the risks that they may face in remaining faithful. He's already talked about the importance of perseverance. Now what he talks about moving into the second part of chapter 1 is this. He talks about trials and temptations. Trials and temptations. And he says, these will be the risks that you will face as a follower of Jesus in a world and in a culture that may not be hostile. It may be. But it's clear that what 
James also recognizes is that almost as insidious as hostility is indifference. If there's opposition, you can at least name it, identify it, and work with it. But it's if, if, if it's indifference and a lack of any concern or interest to who I am, to what I believe, that becomes even more challenging. And so in the verse that's on the, uh, on the overheads, James writes, but when each one is tempted, when by his own evil desire, his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full-blown, gives birth to death. He's talking about the sequence and the cycle of disobedience, of succumbing to temptation, of sinfulness, and he says it has a life cycle. Every once in a while, I tune into some uh, television, uh, a detective show, reality or otherwise, on, on television, and I'm always fascinated because they're frequently when the when the interrogations happen, whether it's in a in this really uh, horrendous small room with metal chairs and detectives, or whether it's in a courtroom. Generally, the conversation will end up like this from a person who is a prosecutor or a detective asking this question. And when was it that you decided to act on your impulse? When was it that you decided to act on your impulse? At what moment did the thought translate to behavior? James points out there is a cycle to that. He is dragged away and enticed. Desire is born. It gives birth to sin, which is the behavior. And he warns the people, these faithful people, consistently to be aware of what it is that they will continue to face if they wish to maintain and to sustain their own faith in the face of temptation, such as he points out here. I'm looking for the words of a song that I'd written down. Did any of you see the movie Crazy Heart with uh, Jeff Bridges? If you've seen it, um, if you haven't, there is, Jeff Bridges sings this marvelous song in that movie, and the title of the song is Fallen and Flyin'. But these are the words of that song, the opening words, which could have come out of a response to the book of James. This is what the words sound like. I'm going where I shouldn't go. I'm seeing what I shouldn't see. Doing what I shouldn't do and being what I shouldn't be. Once again, going where I shouldn't go, seeing what I shouldn't see, doing what I shouldn't do, and being what I shouldn't be. The song goes on. A little voice told me it's all wrong. Another voice told me it's all right. I used to think I was strong, but lately I just lost my might. That is what James is addressing, temptation. The moment when we are there and have the choice of becoming someone we couldn't, shouldn't be, doing something we shouldn't do, and going where we shouldn't go. 
some of you, uh, September, October is always, uh, at least in, in my neighborhood, and when I was, uh, uh, when I was a parish pastor some, some years ago, I always enjoyed and thought of the months of September, October as very, very, uh, joyous and rich months in the life of the church. But also filled with a certain amount of anxiety for this reason. There was always a lot of leave taking going on in September. And in my neighborhood, I would watch all the moms with the kindergartners and a lot of the dads walk the kids down to the school bus stop, and there's a lot of crying and a lot of tears when those kindergartners or the first graders are getting on the bus for the first time. And of course, you know, our kids are growing and out, as, as many of you, and we say, what's this all about? Until I remember what it was all about, the leave-taking. When it got to be late September and October, and I would uh, look out in church on Sundays, and I'd see folks sitting there, and the space next to the to the uh, to the parents was was empty because somebody had gone off to college, and I knew when that happened it wouldn't be long before I got the phone call that sounded like this: Pastor Rogi, my daughter, my son just went off to college, and I don't know what I'm going to do. When the leave taking had happened, and I would usually ask this question: And what was it that was troubling or disturbing to you? And the answer was frequently the same. I just don't know if he or she will be able to sustain the values when he when they're at school that I have taught them and we think that we've helped them to own as their own values as they move into those college years. Whether it's the military, whether it's the Peace Corps, regardless of whatever it was, whatever kind of leave-taking has happened, that will always be an anxiety of those of us who are close to the person who is taking off. Exactly what James was talking about. Will the values, will the faith be able to be sustained? Pastor Chris talked about last week, perseverance is one key to that. Now James names it as temptation, which can eat away and erode that particular capacity to remain faithful. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis? I'd like to read you some portions of that. Here's what happens. God calls to Adam and he asks this question. Where are you? And Adam answers, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. Now, God asks Adam this question. Did you eat of the fruit of the tree of which I said, do not eat? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree of which I said, do not eat? Now, what's the answer to the question? Yes. It's pretty straightforward. Do you remember Adam's reply? Just in case you'd forgotten that this is what it sounds like. The woman whom you gave me, the woman whom you gave me, the answer was yes. Now, please understand, this is not an emphasis on Eve, the woman. The important word in this passage is the woman whom you gave me. You 
God. The woman whom you gave to me created this problem because. And Adam, along with all of humanity, who would follow him, has done something that's very human, attempted to shift the blame and to move the guilt away from himself. Unwilling to listen, unwilling to conform, unwilling to acknowledge disobedience, unwilling to acknowledge transgression, and also very eager to say, it's your fault. Because God, you, created this situation. Now, one would have thought that Eve had learned something from this conversation. So, here's what happens when God asks Eve, what happened? Does she say, I gave him the pomegranate or the fruit? She says, the serpent. It was the serpent that beguiled me, and I ate. Now, James could have talked about and continued in this story about the destructive power of blaming and shifting responsibility and shirking one's way out of disobedience, but he doesn't. He goes on to talk about the compelling and powerful nature of temptation. And that moment, and he talks about it in those, those verses of 14 and 15, that life cycle, the moment when the idea, the desire, begins to shift into behavior and decisions that lead to death and to destruction. The Church of the Middle Ages discovered that truth and trying to create a framework for people to understand the consequences of decisions and the nature of sinfulness, came up with what they described as seven mortal sins, seven deadly sins, and there they are listed right up there. Other than disobedience, what these sins, these seven deadly sins, have in common is one word. The word is excess. Excess. Every one of those sins grows out of a gift that God gives to us humans. The sinfulness is found in taking them to excess. And that excess becomes destructive because a decision gets made along the way. How do I make this work to my advantage? And that leads to a place that James warns about and warns against. In Germany in the 19th century, a writer whose name was Constantine Franz looked at what was going on in Germany in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. And he wondered, because there was a great deal of economic, political, social unrest, he didn't quite know what to make of it, and he was, he was the son of a Lutheran pastor. And he wanted to figure, get some framework for understanding this, this chaos. 
Now, this chaos, this pandemonium, and this social disorder and political unrest was eventually going to lead out to the circumstances that gave rise to uh, World War I. The, the Archduke Ferdinand, that was kind of literally what triggered it, but everything was already in place. So he wondered about that, and he wrote this book, a daring title, called The Source of All Evil. The Source of All Evil. And in spite of all of his writing, he talked about political systems, but finally he came to one single conclusion about the source of all evil. And no, it's, it's not the devil. It's not evil as we understand it. This was his, his response. The source of all evil was forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. And he said this, when we forget who we are, we forget our history, we forget our heritage, we forget our values, the very thing that any of us who sends our children into a place where we don't know what is out there, even a college campus, even kindergarten, we say, remember who you are. Remember, you're my child. Adam and Eve forgot it and started pointing fingers about why they had misbehaved. Between my junior and senior years of college, I had come home from uh, one summer, and my roommate had moved, uh, was moving from North Dakota out to Oregon, where I lived. And so he came along with me. He was going to stay, stay at our house, and we were going to work someplace during the summer until his parents arrived uh, uh, in midsummer. We've been at college for a couple of uh, three years now and did what college students do. And so one evening, maybe we'd been home one or two days, we went out one night, left around 8 or 9 o'clock. We didn't think anything of staying out late. And it got to be very, very early in the morning, 2 o'clock perhaps, very late. We didn't, we came home. We pulled in the driveway and saw that the lights in the kitchen were on. That's not a good sign. And we were 21. Walked in the front door, went to the kitchen, and there sat my father. He was a bit stern, and I didn't quite know what to say. I thought it was a little odd, and I, I didn't say, hi, Dad, you know, do you want a beer? I didn't say anything like that. I didn't know what to say, but he had something to say to me. He never ranted, he never raved, he never complained, he never criticized. This is what my father said to me. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And I couldn't answer, but I knew what he meant. I'd forgotten. We still lived in their house, we still broke bread at their table, I was still their son, and they expected a certain level of participation and cooperation in their house. I forgot about it. James writes to the people, these new Christians, these new faithful, formerly Jewish believers. And he doesn't say, who do you think you are? He says, never forget who you are. 
because you've been gifted and blessed in innumerable ways. My friend and I took our gift of freedom to excess. And it impinged and it moved into an area of abuse of the privileges that we've been given. I hope that you'll have opportunity to read more and pay attention to what James is writing. Of the marvelous words of encouragement that are given to us who aren't dispersed through the Mediterranean world, we're dispersed in a culture and in a world that is, if not hostile to the message of faith, maybe even worse, indifferent, and has a who cares attitude. We're going to be gathering here in a few moments and celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion. You'll hear the words, this is the body, this is the blood of Christ given and shed for you, and know that we're reminded in that gift of who we are. I pray with you and for you that in our conversations together with each other that we're able to ask the question and remind one another indeed of who we are. Because that's the only way that we're able to avoid the sticker on the head I've gone out of order. Please join me in prayer. Gracious and loving God, the temptations are mighty and the temptations are many. All of the good gifts that you've given us, we can easily take to excess. If we believe that a little is good, more must be better. But you remind us that that simply is not true. Help us honor one another, serve one another, and above all, respect one another, because that is who we are. Be with us in this week, in these days. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.